Welcome to New Generation, an insider's guide to a clean energy future. I'm Elena Mannion. I'm a senior analyst at American Efficient, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pete Curtis, who is the CEO of American Efficient. Hi, Pete. Hi, Elena. New Generation is a podcast dedicated to aspiring leaders in the energy transition. It can feel like there are so many barriers to building a renewable energy future. And I personally feel like there can be a bit of a learning curve when it comes to understanding the policy and regulation around clean energy. So the purpose of this pod is to demystify those topics. We're, we're going to be interviewing today's clean energy leaders and experts and get insights into new generation resources like energy efficiency that are driving the energy transition. There's a ton of opportunity for young professionals who are looking to get into clean energy. Currently, this sector employs over 3 million Americans, and that number is growing by about 95,000 jobs a year. Um And I know firsthand as someone just starting out my career that there is so much that I don't know. And so it's great to be able to talk to the people who have helped shape this transition a decade ago. So that's where you come in, Pete. Elaine, I'm so excited to be doing this podcast with you. I've been in the industry for about 15 years, mostly at a company called Opower, where we ran residential energy efficiency programs for electric utilities. And now I lead American Efficient, one of the largest aggregators of energy efficiency resources in the United States. As you said, our intention with the podcast is really twofold. One, we want to hear and learn from today's clean energy leaders. And two, we want to talk specifics about additional initiatives, especially in the realm of energy efficiency, that are needed for the clean energy transition. For our first episode, we'll talk about U.S. energy markets and the role that energy efficiency plays in them. And who better to speak about this topic than our guest, Sudine Kelly, a former commissioner with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and an overall rock star in the clean energy world. I could share Sudine's bona fides for days, but here are some highlights. She was nominated by two presidents to three terms as a FERC commissioner, and she's credited with spearheading meaningful change in numerous policies in that role. For more than 15 years, she was also a professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law. She served as chairwoman and commissioner of the New Mexico Public Service Commission. And most recently, she was appointed to the board of the American Wind Energy Association. Sudeen, welcome to New Generation. Hey, Pete and Elena. It's great to be here. Good to see you again. It's a pleasure to be invited to be a speaker in your new podcast series. Well, the pleasure is ours. Let's kick off the conversation with a high-level overview, if that's okay. Tell us, for those of us that might not be familiar, what do we mean when we refer to energy markets? Well, we mean actually something rather specific. We mean these a type of market that has been spearheaded by FERC, and it's a bid-based auction market for the wholesale sale of electric energy. And these markets are special to the electricity industry. There are seven of them in seven different regions in the United States, and they're run by entities called regional transmission organizations, So when I think of these, I think of the New York Stock Exchange, except that it's for electric energy, not for stocks. That's an awesome analogy. And I never thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense. (laughs) 
these markets, these seven RTOs, how do they actually procure the energy that they need? It's pretty fascinating, I think. They work on a digital forum for qualified buyers and sellers to meet. And the buyers provide their bids for electricity. In other words, what they believe they are going to need. And the sellers provide their offers, what they have to sell and how much and at what price. And the supply and demand, like Economics 101, supply and demand meet and we end up with a market clearing price. How far ahead do they decide like how much energy they're going to need? That's a great question, Elena. There are actually four different bid-based auction markets for electricity. So the first one is run every five minutes. And we call it a real-time market. And it's for buying and selling electricity right now, immediately. The second one is run every hour. And it's for buying and selling electricity tomorrow at that hour. So we call it the day ahead market. So at noon today, that market auction will run for electricity to be sold and bought tomorrow at noon. And then obviously tomorrow at noon, however much electricity you bought today, it's not the exact right amount, right? You either bought a little too much or a little too little. And that's when you have that real-time market, so to fill in. And then there's a third market called a capacity market. Four of the seven RTOs run capacity markets, so not every RTO runs one. And the capacity market is an auction that typically happens once a year, or at least the primary capacity auction happens once a year. And it's to contract for and to pay for resources to be available in the future. I don't know if that's a little opaque. I'm happy to elaborate if, if that would help. This is this sounds incredibly complex and must need a lot of orchestration. I I, I I imagine like multiple types of dating. You've got speed dating, you've got traditional <laughs> dating, and you've got long term relationships. And that's that's the thing that comes to mind when I think about I, these markets. I love that. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> well, how does how does energy efficiency play a role in any of those markets that you described? So energy efficiency plays a role in the capacity markets. And the way that it works is once a year, these RTOs with capacity markets anticipate how much demand for electricity there's going to be in the future. The capacity markets differ as to how far into the future they go. New England and PJM, the Middle Atlantic States market, look for capacity three years from now. New York looks for capacity one year from now. And the mid-continent RTO looks for capacity eight months from now. But it's the same idea. They are looking for a commitment from a provider of an energy resource to commit to provide it 
three years from now. And energy efficiency is a capacity resource, right? Because if you implement an energy efficient device or renovation, insulation, if you buy an appliance and you plug it in your home or you put new energy efficient windows in your apartment building, it will achieve energy efficiency in the future. Okay, so that's why it's not included in the five minute ahead, hour ahead, day ahead. That's right, because it's permanent. You know, once you put it in, it's there. It'll be there three years from now when you put it in, uh, and then it will last for the future. Fascinating. Sudin, you mentioned that the the four RTOs that allow energy efficiency or invite energy efficiency into this mechanism, they have different timing. And I think you mentioned every, everything from three years down to eight months. What's the different, why do those markets have those different timeframes? Each one has a bit of a different philosophy about how much the resources that they need in the future. The two that have three-year horizons are New England and the Middle Atlantic states. The reason for that is that most of the states in those regions restructured their electric industry at the beginning of the century, this century. And in restructuring their electric industry, what they did was they said, the electric industry used to be a three-part monopoly, a monopoly on the distribution system, a monopoly on the transmission system, and a monopoly on generation. But then these states said, you know what? Things have changed since 1910, and it's no longer really a natural monopoly on generation. That doesn't have to be part of a monopoly utility. We have thousands and thousands of generators and potential generators out there, and we now have an electric grid that's totally interconnected. And so we don't need every city and town to build their own generator on the edge of town back in the, like they did in the old days. They have a grid and they can buy energy from almost any place. So those states don't have a monopoly on generation and they need the market. The only thing they have is the market for generation. So they care in particular quite a bit about the security and the reliability and the availability of resources in the future. So they look for a commitment to be there three years from now because they want to know today that they're going to have resources in the future. New York has a, a one year ahead capacity market because it feels that in its smaller market that a year ahead is all that it needs to give new generators the incentive, new generators or energy efficiency providers the incentive to be there when they're needed. And the mid-continent RTO is made up of states that have primarily not restructured so generation is still part of their utility monopoly and state regulators provide 
for the building of generation in those states. And so the need to make sure through a bid-based auction market that there is generation is not as dramatic in those states as it is in the middle mid-Atlantic or, or the New England states. Because they're going to still procure a lot of their own energy? Is Correct. That, okay. Correct. Mm-hmm. And we call the capacity market in the mid-continent, we call it MISO, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator. We call that a residual capacity market because for the very reason you say, Elena, the states are primarily going to make sure that the resources are available but there is residual demand, and MISO takes care of that with its capacity market. Now, Sadine, you were on the commission at FERC when energy efficiency first was introduced as a possible resource to these types of markets. And in many ways, you and your, and your colleagues are the originator of, of parts of this construct. How did you all come to consider energy efficiency as, as a potential participant? And what did you have in mind when you did that? Thanks for that question, because it was a fascinating experience. These markets, the rules for the markets and and the structure of the markets are governed by FERC. And we really haven't had them around that long. California was probably the first one starting it in 1998. And so the other markets started to grow after that. I was at FERC at the end of 2003. And we first envisioned the markets, including the capacity markets, the way I said. In other words, a forum for generators to meet consumers. Over time, we realized that you can serve customers' needs not only by providing electric generators or electricity, but by providing energy efficiency. Um, I've heard it referred to as a megawatt. So if you think about it, what, what the consumers are doing or the buyers are doing in this market is they're anticipating the demand that they are going to have either tomorrow or in a couple years. And they want to make sure that the demand at peak you know, which tends to be in the summertime when it's hot and the air conditioning is running. They want to make sure there are resources to meet that peak demand. What we didn't originally focus on was the fact that the other way to ensure that there's reliable electricity is to lower the demand. Not just meet the demand with electrons, but lower the demand with energy efficiency. And that was a process of you know, living with these markets. FERC has an amazing staff of economists and, and MBAs, and et cetera. And, and being involved in discussions, including with energy efficiency providers, about whether it was possible to incorporate energy efficiency or a megawatt into the bid stack of generation. So that's how the idea came to be. And the commissioners um, in 2005, I believe it was, we said to ourselves, 
this would make the capacity markets more efficient and fairer. And if you think about it from the perspective of an economist, energy efficiency is a benefit to the market. It should be internalized in the market and not just left external to the market. So we encouraged RTOs with capacity markets to incorporate energy efficiency as a qualified energy resource on the supply side of the market. And three of the four markets with capacity markets took us up on the offer. New England, PJM, or the Middle Atlantic, and MISO. New York has still so far not incorporated energy efficiency into its market. I hope it does soon. What exactly do you mean by that? Like they took you up on the offer. Are they not required to now include energy efficiency? That's right. FERC decided that we would not mandate it. We believe we have the legal ability to mandate it. But we wanted market participants to come to a consensus, if possible, that energy efficiency included on the supply side of the market would result in a a more efficient, fairer market, likely produce lower cost, lower clearing prices. And that actually has how it has played out. I guess mandating would be one option, but what can be done to enable EE to play an even bigger role? I have some ideas about that. Thanks for asking the question. The rules for incorporating energy efficiency came into being in 2006. That's what, 15, 16 years ago? And when we promulgated those rules... We were starting on a clean slate with no experience and having energy efficiency in the market. We actually worked with an organization called NASB that sets standards and protocols to come to the best solution for getting energy efficiency into the market. So when you think about it, it's a bit more complicated than just getting an electron from a generator into the market. You have to measure it. What does it mean to be energy efficient? And what's the baseline when something is energy efficient? How energy efficient is it? How do you measure that? And if you aggregate, say, a supply of energy efficient light bulbs, energy efficient lighting has been a huge source of efficiency in our economy over the last 15 years. Not all of those light bulbs are going to be bought, or if they're bought, they're not going to all be installed. If they're installed, they're not all going to be on at a peak time. And so the protocols for measuring and verifying energy efficiency exist and have served us well, but they are unclear and they could be clearer. And our experience with energy efficiency in the marketplace over the last 15, 16 years enables us to be more precise now. And if we were more precise, it would encourage the participation of more energy efficiency. 
So that's, that's at the top of my list for things that could be done that would enable greater, would enable energy efficiency to play an even greater role in the market. Shadine, we often hear from folks that believe that energy efficiency might not be or should not be a viable resource in this capacity market, that energy efficiency might not be as reliable as a generation resource. And that's when we try to make sure that everyone understands there's permanent energy efficiency and there's things like behavioral energy efficiency. Are both of those allowed in the market? No, only permanent energy efficiency is allowed in the market. There is a very strict measurement and verification process and energy efficiency providers have to essentially prove that the energy efficiency is going to come into existence in eight months or a year or three years. And those providers play a huge role in getting energy efficiency into the marketplace. Because when you think about energy efficiency, it's achieved on a home-by-home basis, right, in relatively small amounts. So what energy efficiency providers do is they aggregate all that efficiency and provide it as a block and take on the responsibility of accounting for it and measuring it and verifying it and committing to having it in the market at the time that the capacity market wants them to. Sudin, I'm wondering, how did you get to be a commissioner at FERC? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, sometimes I ask my, myself that question um, <laughs> because I did not set out on my career to become a FERC commissioner. Although it did strike my mind about a year before I was nominated that maybe I could become a FERC commissioner. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on it looking back and retrospectively, how did it happen? Because it certainly wasn't something I designed. So as you said, Elena or, or Pete, I was nominated by the president, by two presidents and confirmed and advised by the Senate or senators. So working backwards, that's how you become a FERC commissioner. So how is it that the president will nominate you? The president has to know who you are or the senators who advise the president has to know who you are. So how did they come to know who I am and who I was in 2003? when I look at it, I realized that my career involved working in jobs and positions that brought me to the attention of governors and legislators and senators. And, um, you know, I was very lucky to work in a job, work in a number of jobs. So I, I worked, as Pete said, at the New Mexico Public Service Commission. I was appointed by the governor and I served as chair. And so I had four years of being known to the public, at least the public in New Mexico and the legislators and the senators. And so they knew me. And then I was a law professor and I had hundreds, if not thousands students who knew me and knew what I knew about energy and was able to 
convey that to the president and the senators. And then on a sabbatical, I worked for Senator Bingaman from New Mexico, who was on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. And he hired me and detailed me to the committee. And another member of the committee was my other senator from New Mexico, Senator Domenici. So in my career, I was lucky enough to be in positions where those people came to know me and to understand, I, I hope, I think, that I could do the job and would do a good job. So you were appointed two different times. How long, when you're appointed, like, are you a FERC commissioner before you would need to be appointed again? Does it change with each new president? No, it doesn't. There are five FERC commissioners, and each commissioner holds a seat, quote unquote, that has a five-year term attached to it, such that every year one commissioner's seat comes up for renewal or replacement. So I was first nominated to a seat that had one year left on it. President Bush nominated me to that. And then President Bush renominated me to that seat with five-year terms. And then President Obama renominated me to that seat with a five-year term. I always, I know this isn't accurate, Sudine, but I always have this vision in my mind. You know, I think of FERC as the Supreme Court of Energy, right? And <laughs> and I always have this vision in my mind of you all in black robes doing this, uh, doing all these rulemakings. And I know that's probably not the case, but um, we're very <laughs> thankful for your service there for sure. Thank you. Thank you. FERC continues to be a very important cog in the wheel of the energy world. I once did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. And FERC, when I was on the commission, decided five and a half cases a day. That's a lot of decision-making. And it's only gotten more so since then. The other thing that happens at FERC is all of the cases of first impression, right? The really big problems, the ones that are hard to solve, like should you put energy efficiency in the market? And if so, how do you do it? They come to FERC. So FERC is on the cutting edge of the energy world. And it's only, in my opinion, gotten more important as our technology has changed and advanced. And frankly, as our goals for the markets have evolved. Back when we started these markets, we were looking for basically two things. We were looking to have a market, you know, a real bid-based digital forum where buyers and sellers could get together easily, many buyers and many sellers, to come up with an efficient way and at least cost, less costly way to sell electricity. And we also wanted a market that enabled innovation, that let in new participants. Before, in the old days, if you were a new technology you had to knock on the door of your local utility and say, would you like to buy some electricity from me, right? And they would say yes or no. Or they would say, we're going to do it ourselves. We don't want you to do it. So having a marketplace enables innovation. And as, as you mentioned, Elena, when we started, 
the energy world is more central to our future. And we've gone from caring not just about the least cost way to meet our energy needs, but we want them also to be sustainable now. And we have, as you said, the industry is booming because there's opportunity. There's opportunity for new technology to better meet our sustainability goals. And having these markets, these bid-based auction markets, means that we have a place for those innovators, those entrepreneurs to sell their product. And for those consumers who want to buy something more than just an electron, who want to see energy efficiency flourish, who want to see green power flourish, that they can have a forum in which they can exert their demands. So the markets and FERC's and FERC's regulation of those markets or the regulation of the rules for the markets, I think has only gotten more important. I imagine that with having the market evolve and making these changes, you must have seen a lot of pushback from different interests. Can you speak about that at all? Well, change, right? We're talking about change. And we're talking about changing a paradigm that was in place from when electricity began, right? Maybe 1910 or so with hydropower. And years of doing it one way. So there's a transition as change evolves, and it starts with the thought leaders. You know, it starts with state regulators who say, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this. It starts with FERC commissioners and FERC staff who say, maybe there's a better way to do this. And when you make change, obviously, you need to understand that it may not always be good for everyone. There may be losers. You know? There may be losers if, if you allow this change to happen. And what do you do about that? What do you do about that economically? What do you do about that politically? So those are the things that one needs to take into account when you're making change. To go back to one of your earlier questions, when we were thinking about making a big change of putting energy efficiency in this market, we knew there was potentially going to be pushback. And by not mandating it, but rather by leading change, talking about change, explaining the benefits, going through that process so that the markets and the market participants themselves can say, oh, yeah, let's do that, is much better, ultimately, in the long run, to making sure that change gets incorporated in the best way and that it sticks. Sadine, you are, you are so wise, and I find myself taking notes each time I speak with you, which I think is a, a good sign. What an amazing career of public service you've had, and it's not over, obviously. You're still very involved in all sorts of initiatives. Thank you, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us today. To close out today's conversation, 
Do you have any books, articles, or other resources that you would recommend for folks that are interested in learning more about clean energy, energy efficiency, and otherwise, and how it does and can play a role in, in our energy infrastructure? You know, I found out just about two months ago about a compilation of articles. It's called Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States, and it's edited by Mike Gerard and John Dernbach. And Mike is a friend of mine who runs the Sabin Center for Climate Change at Columbia University, and it is about 700 pages of right up-to-date cross-cutting analyses of what's going on in technology, in politics, in policy, in regulation, in state regulation and federal regulation. How is deep decarbonization faring in the United States and how is it proceeding? So it's my newest book find. <laughs> That sounds like a great one. I'll, I'll be definitely ordering that one. <laughs> Sudine, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been really, really insightful. I'm going to wrap up now by saying to our listeners, if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. Email us at newgeneration at americanefficient.com or send us a tweet at efficient. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Elena. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Sudine.